What does it mean to be entirely ready? How can we trust our higher power to remove our defects of character? Welcome to episode 274 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Maureen, Tana, Lily, Eric, and Rianwen. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Maureen, Tana, Lily, Eric, and Rianwen for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with a seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. And Today, I wanted to bring to you Mary Pearl T's thoughts on step six, which is we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. What are the things that are within me that stand between me and my use to God and my fellow man? Those are the things that I need to get rid of. And so we move on into step six. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Like I said, I got to this point and I sat down and rested. I mean, taking that inventory was traumatic to say the least. It took me a couple of months to get it all written down, pray about it, go back over it time and time again, get it right and tell the truth, go over it with somebody, and I think I've done a lot, and I didn't realize that I had a defect, and it was called procrastination. That's a four-syllable word for sloth. (laughs) You know? Being a slug, just, you know, sitting there. And it's like I read everything in the books and there wasn't that much to read about the sixth step. What do you do, you know? There was just a paragraph in the big book about it. There's just so little, you know. And I have to make a production number out of anything, even brushing my teeth. Let's make it a big deal, you know. And uh, I can complicate things. I have a tendency to do that. I can take a little bitty something, like I say, blow it up, and then you know what to do with it. And uh, my sponsor told me, she said, uh, it's a problem with very educated people. They're usually educated beyond their level of intelligence. (laughs) Okay. And that's the truth. You know, I sat in uh, meetings for probably a couple of years, and one night the serenity prayer came through, and I understood what it was about. Now, I've been praying it daily. Many times a day, sometimes, God grant me the serenity not to kill that some bitch. I want to. <laughs> you know, I would, I would go through all that, and every meeting we'd, you know, start with a serenity prayer. And, but I was sitting there, and it was in an open AA meeting, and, and when they said, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, I said, that's it. That's it. It hit, it just hit a nerve. We're asking God to give us serenity. We're asking God to give us courage and God to give us wisdom. You see, I had knowledge, but I didn't have wisdom because that comes from God. It's the ability to take knowledge and use it wisely. And I didn't know how. And no, you don't know how. 
God is the one that shows you how to do that. And that's what I had been asking for without realizing because I kept trying to work on it, to do it myself. You work a program, but you allow God to do those things because those are God jobs to give you serenity, to have serenity in the middle of a storm when the, everything around you is going to hell in a handbasket and for you to be okay. I've experienced that, you know. It's not an everyday occurrence, but it does happen. And all you have to have is for it to happen one time, and you know it's possible. You know, used to I would sit in my office and my head would be somewhere else. I can't think of the hours of time that I've screwed my employer out of by my mind being somewhere else. My body may be in the chair, but my mind is not there. Did not show up for work today. Sorry. (laughs) Because I could not turn my head off. I could not seem to turn my head off. And I remember sitting there one day, and it was almost time to go home, and I went, oh, I haven't wondered what he was doing all day today. I have had an entire day alcoholic-free. No more free rent in my mind today. It is possible. It is possible. Can't do it every day. But it is possible, and once you find out it is possible... You can do it again and again and again, but you've got to see that it is possible. And that's what the the deal is about. Now, the big book will ask you, is your work solid so far? Are your stones properly in place? In other words, have you told the truth? Is everything up to this point and to step five? Are you ready to start the journey of change? Because, see, nothing basically has changed. You're still the same you. You're doing some different things. But you haven't changed until you become ready to change in steps six and seven. Getting rid of those things that stand between you and your usefulness for God. That's where the change really begins. See, I thought the change was menopause. (laughs) You think that's miserable? So can this be, I'm telling you. You know, if not, I go back and I try to get myself into the state of willingness to make whatever changes that God deems necessary for me to do so that I can be a useful Mary Pearl. A useful Mary Pearl. Uh, it sounds real simple, doesn't it? Well, it's simple, but it's not easy because old habits die hard. You know, and you can say to yourself, I don't want to ever do that. I can remember J.D. and I would get into the fight. All he'd have to do is open the door and my mouth was attached to it and we'd go at it. <laughs> Well, just because he's sober doesn't mean this stopped, you know, because you just find different things to fight about, you know, that kind of thing. And so you're going to have to have a lot of willingness to be able to have the door open and you keep your mouth shut. And uh, it's hard to do, so you have to pray to be willing. So you're going to have to gain some more humility now. You're going to have to be willing to let the other people be right. Oh, I can let you be right as long as I'm not wrong. Well, why can't you be wrong, Mary Pearl? Well, because if I make a mistake, that makes me a mistake, doesn't it? No. It makes you a human being. And when I could learn to say I was wrong and be okay with it, a whole new world of freedom opened up for me. I can make mistakes now. It's not a big deal. Everybody does. But I couldn't allow myself to make mistakes. I couldn't allow myself more often to admit them. But pain is your best motivator, unfortunately. When you get enough pain, 
You know, it would be nice if we could change when we see the light. But most of us have to feel the heat. You know, just seeing it isn't enough, you know. But when I'm hurt bad enough in practicing a particular defect, I become willing to let go of it when I hurt enough. Now, what was my main thing that was bothering me when I came in? Rage. Not just anger, but rage and violence. And I wanted to get rid of that out of my life. I hated people feeling afraid of me, yet I was afraid to let them get too close, but I didn't want to have to go into that rage and that violence anymore. And so I talked to my sponsor about it, and I told her, I said, how do I do this? And she said, well, you become willing that God would remove that from you. I said, and how does that work? She said, you just pray for the willingness to allow God to show you another way to deal with your anger. She said, you don't know how to deal with your anger. And I got to thinking about it. All right, how did we deal with anger when I was growing up? Well, I don't ever remember being really, really angry as long as Daddy was alive because I pretty much got my way. But after Daddy died, how we dealt with anger was Mother would beat me and I would cry. And then I found out that if I didn't cry, it got even with her more because it irritated her more if I didn't cry. And so I quit crying when I got hurt. And, of course, that made her beat me more. And I see that that doesn't make any sense. You know, if you're going to get get it worse for not crying, but somehow or another it was like I won. And that's the way it was in our house. It was like a competition. I won. So I had to realize what happens here. Well, if I don't deal with my anger, I swallow it down. Now, it's not going away. It's deep inside, and it's going blip, 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 blip. And then I have something else, and I don't deal with it, and it goes down. Blip, 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 blip. And you go thing after thing after thing after thing goes in until you're just... And then one day, the one more thing happens that you just... It's the trigger. And it goes down, and the volcano that you have created erupts, and here it all comes. And it just comes out. And it comes out on whoever put the last little book in. And it may not be anything but the girl at the checkout, you know. And usually it's somebody who is not even responsible for all the blups, you know. It's just that poor victim, that unsuspecting victim out there. And usually somebody that you can get angry with and they can't retaliate. That's the best kind. You know, take it out on somebody who can't get even with you. That's really, really mature, you know. And so I realized that's what I'd been doing. And that by the time that that volcano erupts, I have no control over the volcano now. It's totally out of control because I I can't stop the volcano from erupting once it begins to blow. And it's like you open up your mouth and it don't, you're not just talking about what happened, but you're going back and you're, and you're getting all that anger from all that stuff relived. See, that's what resentments are about. Resentments, it comes from a Greek word, resentire, meaning to refill. And you refill it over and over and over again until you keep the wound raw. It never can heal over. My mother said to me when I was 14, you are entirely the biggest disappointment of my life. That's pretty heavy on a 14-year-old kid. And Mama said it to me one time, and I said it in my head again and again and again and again, giving her credit for it, over and over. 
My mother says, to think I got pregnant and wanted to be pregnant and then had you. You know, now these are things from a woman who is very, very frightened, very afraid, has no tools to deal with life. She was raised in alcoholism. All she knows is about hurt and how to hurt. That's all she knows. But I don't know that. All I know is that my mother's told me over and over again that I'm, I'm worthless. That's, that's, that's the message that I got. And so I repeated that in my head again and again. And I kept going back trying to do something that would make her change her mind and give me a, a I love you or you did okay. And that was never going to happen because she didn't know how to do that. But the thing of it is, we never sit down and talked about that because, you know, in alcoholism, communication goes. There is no communication. You don't sit down and talk things out. How can you? That's what we tell you to do in here. Reason things out with one another. Talk things out. Let there be no gossip or criticism of one another. Instead, let the loving peace of the program flow in you one day at a time. You know, that's what we're taught in here. But it didn't have that. But I had to become willing to do that. And when I became willing to do that, my sponsor said, Have you ever thought of counting to ten? I said, Yeah, five, ten. Hell, I'm there. She says, well, obviously what you're going to have to do is start dealing with anger when it comes before it swallows down in the volcano. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she says, well, when something makes you angry, what do you say? I said, nothing. I just grip my teeth. Because if I open my mouth, I'm going to say too much. And she says, well, why don't you just open your mouth and say, what you did made me angry. Not you make me angry. But it's what you did. See, I had a hard time separating people from their actions. And I would hate you for what you did instead of hating your action. And so she said, why don't you try doing that? And so I went around there for a long time. Boy, that makes me angry. That makes me angry. And you know when I said that makes me angry, I didn't have to swallow it down because guess what? By making its statement, I was dealing with my anger. I was dealing with the anger. I was taking the power away from the anger by making the statement, that makes me angry. That didn't mean you were going to change anything you did. If you did, that was nice. But I needed to say it just for me rather than to swallow it down. And when I would do that, then I found myself screaming less. I found myself being rageful less. I began to be able to deal more with my anger because God was giving me tools to use to remove that rage because once the rage is there, the rage is there. So you have to, it's one of those things you got to do a little bud nipping here, you know, stop it before it starts. Um, it's a good uh, step, get ready step. Just like two is a get ready step for three, four is a get ready step for five, Six is a get-ready step for seven, you know. And remember, no matter how long you've been in, you're going to have desires that are going to go against the will of God. That's just the way we are as human beings. Now, you know, I loved the slow premeditated revenge. (laughs) I loved it. It was such a rush, you know. I got off on that, you know, thinking of how to get even with you. And uh, J.D., uh, he seemed to be uh, the one that could bring that out in me the quickest. Isn't it funny how the people you love can get on your last nerve the quickest of anybody? You have more patience with a complete stranger than you do the person you live with, you know. And uh, he had this craving for things other than alcohol. And he had a craving for sports cars. 
Now, I don't particularly care for sports cars. Uh, I'm a big woman. Uh, sports cars are very low to the ground. They're hard to get in. And I think he did that on purpose because he didn't want me riding with him. <laughs> but anyway, and this was back in the days when we wore the big bouffant hairdos, you know. And my hair was very long, and so it was like up in this giant beehive or, or French twist or something of that nature. And so when I would try to get in the car, there was not a good way because, like I say, it's like right on the ground. My center of gravity, once it gets down like that, it's hard to get it going. And so I would end up just turning sideways and falling in the car. And once you're in the car, you can pull your feet around. you got plenty of leg room, but it's that getting in and out that's tricky. But getting out, I always manage to get my feet hung in the steering wheel. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> now, my husband and I are pretty much the same height, only we are very different in our body makeup. My husband has a very long torso. I have very long legs. He has little short legs, so it's easier for him to get in and out of that car, you know. So, I, like I say, in trying to get out, I always got my feet hung in the steering wheel. And uh, I hated the car. I hated it. And so at this point, we have a big, we went to buy a car at one time, and I, I told him, I said, I want a station wagon. He said, I want a sports car. And I said, I'm not having a sports car. He said, I'm not having a station wagon. So we bought a truck. Nobody wanted that. That's how you give in, don't you see? That's your compromise. Get something neither one of you want, you know. <laughs> Spend thousands of dollars on it. That's what you do. That's sane, you know. So anyway, by this time, uh, you know, I'm still driving the, the pickup, and, and it's a big truck, and he's got this little sports car. It's an MG Midget. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen one of those, but those are the smallest of the small, up until these smart cars. I have never seen anything quite like that. Um, but anyway, um, he said to me, uh, what? Right, it's been a long time ago, right. Well, he, uh, one morning I said, okay, it's my day off. I'm going to go buy groceries with my girlfriend, so be sure and leave me the pickup. Well, he thought it would be funny to see me and my girlfriend, who weighed around 300 pounds, get in the MG Midget. <laughs> now, he wasn't going to be there to see it, but he could put it in his mind's eye, you know. And so that morning when I got up and I looked out there and I saw that car that made me furious because I had specifically asked him not to do that. And I thought, well, he's trying to keep me from having a good time. He's not going to stop me. I'm going to be able to go get my groceries. I'm going to do what I need to do. To hell with him. And so I, it was in the wintertime. So I get in, I fall in, get my feet in, and I go over there in my coat, heavy coat, and she's standing on her front porch, and she hears me going through the gears as I'm coming over. And um, she's going... Stand there shaking her head. She says, not going to work. And I said, yes, it will. She said, I can't get in. I said, you can and you will. I am a positive thinker. And she said, and so I explained to her how you just drop out of midair. And um, once you're there, then you pull your feet around. And so when she dropped, the, the car tilted back and forth. And I finally got her feet around, and I got the door shut because she had on this heavy coat. 
And then all of a sudden, I'd do my fall in, get in, and every time I'd shift gears, she had a spiritual experience. (laughs) Well, getting in is one thing. Getting out is much harder. (laughs) So I got out, got my feet hung in the steering wheel, crawled out, went around the other side, and I said, come on, Reeve, you can get out. And she said... I can't. I said, what do you mean you can't? She said, I'm stuck. I said, stuck. She says, I'm stuck in this bucket seat. I am stuck. She says, there's suction or something here. And I said, well, you're going to get out. And so I put one foot up on the door and the other one over here, and I'm jerking like this. You are coming out of the car. And when she came, she came all at once and caught me off balance. So she fell on top of me out in the parking lot. Well, there's this guy watching, and he says, Lord of mercy, call a fire department. (laughs) And I say to myself, am I going to have to whip his butt before I go in the grocery store? (laughs) So finally, we got ourselves up and wallowed around out there, and we went in, and we bought groceries. Now, I don't have a clue where I thought I was going to put those, because you know there's no trunk. (laughs) It's the size of a glove compartment. So we had stuff stacked all in behind us and the seats all in the floorboard because that's where we had. And then we had to go through this reverse process, get back in the car. Here we go again. We got a few blocks away and broke the axle. Now, my husband comes home from work and he says, where's my little sugar plum? Where's my car? And I said, it's in a ditch over on School Street. He said, what happened? And I told him, and he said, my God, honey, it has a 500-pound weight allowance. I said, who knew and who cared? That was your problem. You left it. I took it. Forget it. (laughs) Not my fault. (laughs) Never. So he said, well, we'll go over and we'll try and tow it home. And so we got over there. Now, it's in the big truck, right? Well, the big truck, it's raining about like it is today. And so the automatic choke was on on that truck. And all of a sudden, he began to give me instructions on towing a vehicle like I had just fallen off the turnip wagon. <laughs> well, there's one thing that's really irritating, and that is for somebody to give you minute directions on how to do something you know how to do. And so he kept saying, now don't floorboard it. Now don't floorboard it. Now, like, who in their right mind would floorboard a car when you're towing, for God's sakes, you know? And so all I did was I just took my foot off the brake And there was enough momentum from the automatic choke that it threw him out sideways, broke the chain. Because it's a big truck and that's a little car. And he came (laughs) up to the window and he says, I told you not to floorboard it. And he he just called me everything but a human being. So I just sat there and watched him. And I thought, okay, if you're going to wear the name, you might as well play the game. So... He broke the chain, so the chain's shorter than it was a while ago. <laughs> and so he hooked on, and um, he got in, and I floorboarded it. Now, <laughs> it whipped him out and a back and across about twice and broke the chain, almost flipped him over. And he got out of the car, and he was hysterical. And he came up there, and he said, <laughs> and I said, now that's what happens when you floorboard it. Did you note the difference? (laughs) 
And he said, oh, my God. Well, now the chain's about four, four foot long. And he said, don't stop fast going home. If you do, I'm going to go up under the truck. Well, I don't know. Is it obvious to you? It was obvious to me. I can't please him. So I just went home. I didn't bother to stop. Yes, there was a red light. Yes, there was a stop sign. I just didn't stop. So when we finally got to our house, he gets out of the car. He says, <laughs> he says, I'll never have you tell me again in the echoing corridors of time. And I thought, yes, you will. And when you do, I'm going to remember how you've talked to me. Three years later, I have my big station wagon. It's 450 horsepower engine. It's a 12 passenger station wagon and he's still got his little cream puff. And he calls me and he's out at his mother's and he says, my fuel pump's gone out. Will you tow me home? And I said, yeah, I'll be glad to. And when I hung up the phone, I said, <laughs> oh, God, he's mine. <laughs> now, the hardest thing is to keep a straight face when you get there. And so I back in ever so, so serenely. And, the, and he still got this little four-foot piece of chain. <laughs> he was always going to do something. You know how they're always going to do and never get around, you know? And so he hooked it on, and he says, now, you'll have to drive pretty slow because I'm pretty close on the... And I said, yeah, I see that. Because when I would look in my rearview mirror, I could not see the front end of the car. I could see his windshield and his face. (laughs) It was enough. So I went out his mother's driveway ever so serenely over to the main highway where I decided to do 80. Well, you feel a little bit of drag, and I could see smoke coming from his tires where he's trying to put the brakes, you know, but it ain't going to happen with a big car. The big mama's on the road. And I'm coming, and I'm just tearing down the road 80, 90 miles an hour, and all of a sudden there's three cars in front of me. Pass them. Puppy! His eyes were big as beer cans. I'm telling you, he was waving and screaming. And I was just, I went 15 miles in 13 minutes. Pulled in my driveway. He got out. He cried like a baby. And he said, and I said, don't know how to tow, do we? And I just looked at him and I said, don't you ever criticize my towing again. And he said, oh, my God. He said, that was three years ago. I said, felt like today. (laughs) Because, see, I could keep that revenge going in me for a long time, you know. And it's like if you wait long enough, every dog has her day, you know. Mm. Now, we laugh. I'd be willing to bet you if you was one of those three cars I passed, you wouldn't have been laughing. And when I think about it, you see, my revenge was I would lose all sense of sanity to get even with you. And the fact that I could have been endangering my life, his life, and anybody who was on the road that day never entered my mind. Never entered my mind. And I said, you know, I said, like, well, God, you know, that's funny. I can look back on a lot of stuff in my life that's funny. 
But it's not funny at the time, and it can have very serious consequences for doing something. You know, I have been to the prisons and talked, and there's people there doing time for me. They're doing things that they got put away with that I didn't get put away for, you know. I could be one of them, you know, but for the grace of God. Uh, so that was one of the things. That was just a coping mechanism, you know, the revenge was... Uh, another thing I was told, I had to give up exaggeration, and I said, what do you mean? They said, that's a lie. What? Well, when you make things bigger than what they are, it's not true anymore, so exaggeration is a lie. Oh, well, I don't guess I'll have much to say for quite a while over here, (laughs) you know, because I had to have a big deal. See, like I say, I create a crisis all the time. So I had to do that. I had to give up acting superior because I had a tendency to feel like I was smarter than other people until I got around other people and realized they were living life a lot better than I was, you know. And it was because I was so inferior that I had developed a superiority complex to compensate for how I felt on the inside. Uh, but my biggest defect of character was self-centered fear. Because self-centered fear would activate all these other things inside of me. It was the activator of all of them. And try to live without all your coping mechanisms, you know. It's like, how do you live without doing all this stuff that you've been doing for a lifetime? How do you live without that? You have to learn to put something in its place. You can't just have a void there. You have to do something in its place. And they have the willingness and it, it's, and it's also on record that nowhere does it show that anybody's had all of their defects removed forever in a day. So no, you're not going to become perfect. You're always going to have an opportunity for growth here. It's like when I quit doing something over here, then this one over here seems to get out of whack, or this one over here will go. You know, you're always going to have something on which to work. But you're not going to give up your natural instincts. Those are there. You know, fear is a natural instinct that has been overused. Where my problem was, was in unnatural, unnatural fear. See, a natural fear is if I go out here and lay down the road, somebody's going to run over me, naturally. (laughs) But to think that somebody's going to come off the road inside the building and kill me standing here, that's not a natural fear, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, And you have to strive for progress. Progress. Nobody's ever perfect, you know. We have to make a beginning and keep trying, and that's what this step is all about. Um, I've got to remember, too, that God is a gentleman, and he won't give me more than I can deal with at any given time. Times I feel like he has a lot more faith in me than what he should have when I have to go through stuff. But, you know, anything that happens, God's going to be there with you, and he will not give you more to bite off than you can chew. You will, though. When you think that you're being put upon and you've got more on you than needs to be on you, how much did you put on you? Because God has not been the one to do it. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so that we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.